I guess rule number one is don't be one of Adrian Peterson's 57 children. <laughs> a little more meat in the front. Peter Parker got the super, got the Spider-Man powers. It's a good thing he got them and some other dick didn't. Livius, did you ever see Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? Dude, that's a great name for a bar. Yeah, especially if you're thirsty. I've actually been on fire. Jumping in the, uh, the, the time machine for uh, corporal punishment, I guess. Taking her teeth out with a pipe wrench or branding her with it. It's not cheap to take over the world. Too much power for one man to have. Um, that's the generation that's never been really hit with anything. That was the first thing you get when you get to a new place is you get your panties basket. I can't make a book reference expecting anybody to understand it. Yeah, I'm never reading any of your stuff again. You know, now that you mention it, no one's ever asked me how I find the time to podcast. Fuck you, Fred Venturini, for that first story. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> I thought you were banned from all libraries. Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. The book that we're going to be talking about this week is The Heart Does Not Grow Back by Fred Venturini. Uh, we're also going to have Fred on a little bit later in the episode, but for right now, I'm going to give you his author bio. Fred Venturini grew up in Pakota, Illinois. His short fiction has been published in the Booked Anthology. Huh? Yeah, you know what? I thought that name looked familiar. Uh, Noir at the Bar 2 and Surreal South 13. His story, Gasoline, was in the Chuck Palahniuk anthology, Burnt Tongues. He lives in southern Illinois with his wife and daughter. It's almost like a neighbor to us. He's only like, what, four hours away? Something like that, yeah. Patoka, Illinois. Have you ever heard of Patoka, Illinois? Oh, I don't know, but I definitely said Pakota. Yeah, I was thinking that, but that's okay. Listen, the 18, 19 people that live in, in Pakota, Patoka, they won't notice the difference. Maybe not. I don't know. Maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> All right, we uh, we talked about this book God, a long time ago. We did a Noir at the Bar 2 sessions uh, two years ago. Does that sound about right? Maybe? Actually, that's not where we had him on. We had him on for one of our three author interviews. Uh, we did. And it was like, a, yeah, 2012, I think. Yeah, so it's been a long time. And uh, we heard then that it was uh, going to be kind of rewritten from its original form, The Samaritan, and, and put out. And now, finally, finally, we get a chance to read this bad boy. That's right. Here is the synopsis um, from Amazon. Yes? Yeah. Okay. I was asking one of our interns, but that's cool that you answered. Sorry. Every superhero needs to start somewhere. Dale Sampson is used to being a non-person at his small-town Midwestern high school. Picking up the scraps of his charismatic Lothario of a best friend, Mac... He comforts himself with the certainty that his stellar academic record and brains will bring him the adulation that has evaded him in high school. But when an unthinkable catastrophe tears away the one girl he ever had a chance with, his life takes a bizarre turn as he discovers an inexplicable power. He can regenerate his organs and limbs. When a chance encounter brings him face to face with a girl from his past, he decides that he must use his gift to save her from a violent husband and a dismal future. His quest takes him to the glitz and greed of Hollywood and into the crosshairs of shadowy forces bent on using and abusing his gift. Can Dale use his powers to redeem himself and those he loves, or will the one thing that finally makes him special be his demise? The Heart Does Not Grow Back is a darkly comic, starkly original take on the superhero tale, introducing an exceptional new literary voice in Fred Venturini. What is a mouthful? Yeah, it's a little bit of a lengthy synopsis, but but very accurate. Yeah, I'd say so. So, um, yeah, that's the setup. Dale, um, you know, we kind of see a little bit of him at, at a younger age when he kind of breaks the uh, breaks the dork barrier by making a uh, a new best friend. 
Um, and it kind of moves. It, it jumps around a little bit, especially early on. You know, a year here, a year there kind of thing. And we kind of follow him through high school. Um, at one point, Mac kind of, I don't know, manipulates him into into talking to uh, to this girl. Uh, one of two, uh, one of two twins, actually. Yeah, and and that's kind of the fateful moment. So like, we kind of see his origin story of how he met up with his uh, what will be his best friend Mac, who is kind of like the popular like lady killer kind of boy uh, in the school, um, who everybody wants to be and all the girls want to be with. Um, but uh, the the kind of uh, catalyst moment is after their friendship had gone on for a few years. Uh, there's these the set of twins, like Olivia said, and. Um, Mac hints to Dale that that one of them likes Dale, and Dale feels like his only way to get out from under the uh, um, the assumption from everybody that everything that Dale gets is from Mac would be if he just went up and started talking to this girl. So that kind of sets a path where um, there's kind of a back and forth about whether they like each other, and then. Um, uh, uh, it, it starts up rivalries with um with another uh, male uh, student named Clint about uh, the girls. So it's kind of like this tumultuous love triangle that leads to a kind of a tragic end uh, for for high school for them. Yeah, and I mean I think it's pretty early on, and and I don't think it's too spoilery to say that uh, the object of Dale's affection um, is killed in a um I don't know what's what's becoming frighteningly a more realistic situation in in high schools and even elementary schools you know kind of a, a gunplay episode where where numerous students are, are hurt and killed yeah so the two of them have a plan or had had a plan mac uh, was going to be a, a sports star and dale was going to represent him as an agent slash lawyer um, and of course after this tragedy things kind of fall apart so the friends grow more distant and neither one of them is really doing anything uh, that is kind of on what their original path was mm -hmm. but blossoming out of that is also the realization um, during this shooting Regina who is the, the object of Dale's affection um, is killed uh, Dale is shot and so is Mac so everybody gets uh, injured um, but only Regina dies but it's it's in this incident that um, in the aftermath of it that Dale realizes that his body um, has some unusual regeneration abilities, uh, which there were hints of earlier on with other injuries that that healed abnormally quickly. But this is the real kind of evidence. This is the proof that something's not quite right with him. And and then from there, he tests it a little bit to kind of discover the the at least some of the the lengths that uh, his body will go to to regenerate limbs and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I really liked about the Dale character in this book in general is that you would think, um, Rob, you watch Heroes, right? Yeah. Save the cheerleader, save the world. That's right. This was a far less glamorous and, and I think maybe even more realistic kind of approach. Dale's not happy about this ability that he has. You know, he's kind of confused by it. And his first instinct isn't to go out and save the world. Um, he's very disturbed by it, um, you know, wants to learn more about why it happened to him. But he also um, toys, I shouldn't even say toy, very consider, very um, seriously consider suicide at numerous points. Yeah, it's almost like a, a plan. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, and that's the. I guess I agree with you. The interesting thing about the way that it was told in this story is that his ability to regenerate is discovered amongst all of this tragedy in his life. So his mother dies. His, you know, the girl he wants uh, to be with uh, dies. His buddy loses um, kind of his future baseball career because of an injury from from this thing. So it's just like shrouded in all this tragedy. And it almost kind of emphasizes the fact that, like, while he can regenerate and be whole uh, physically, it doesn't do anything emotionally uh, for him. And it doesn't do anything to help the people around him. So, yeah, it is a very somber uh, situation. Mm-hmm. So um, a chance encounter at a local Walmart um, brings him face to face with the um, the super Walmart. <laughs> is it a super Walmart? <laughs> yeah. Um, at a super Walmart, is there a difference really anymore? I don't know. Okay. Um, uh, with um, Regina's twin sister, Rihanna. Uh, so he, you know, talks to her and, and she is the, uh, as mentioned in the synopsis, you know, she's kind of in a hairy situation of her own at home. And he, in some way, I think wants to save her because he couldn't save her sister. And that's really where the story starts to get very interesting. Yep. So, and then one of the cool things that happens is like he has this moment where, um, as I think anybody would, he decides that he's going to see what he can do as far as turning this regenerative ability into uh, money. So, like, you know, selling body parts basically, because if something goes away, he knows it's going to grow back. So, um, he, <laughs> there's this part of the book where he's going into looking into, uh, and you know, like black market, um, like organ selling and and body part selling and stuff like that. So that's really cool. And I think that, you know, like honestly, any one of us at a certain point would just be like, dude, I have this endless, endless revenue stream of something that's really, really valuable. So, um, I thought it was pretty cool. See fiction meets reality. You'd be cutting out your liver within minutes of figuring out you had this regenerator. If you wouldn't have like all this pondering and all this. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I do love a scene. I don't think I, I highlighted anything from it, but he is talking to a local guy he finds who um, he finds out sells um, like, I don't know, they, they like fake cremate, fake cremating people and they sell the bodies for like yeah. medical um, research and stuff. And he, he brings him as a Dale brings him as proof that he can provide. He doesn't tell us guy he can regenerate, but as proof that he can provide, you know, different types of body parts. He brings him like three toes. <laughs> and the conversation they have around the three toes and their value is just is great. Yep. So, um, yeah, so Dale, you know, we don't want to go too far and get too spoilery about the book, but I will say that Dale takes a very interesting turn on what you would think would be, you know, this, this onslaught of using his ability to, to rescue this girl takes it in a completely, completely different direction. Um, and you know, it says in there, it takes him to, to Hollywood, and yeah, he kind of seeks a different way to to make things right and to save this girl. Yeah, and I mean, really, that's the big theme of the book is is uh, him and love, and not necessarily redemption as much as like making things right with people. Mm-hmm. Um, so almost every, if not every, decision he makes is motiv- is motivated by um, how he feels about a woman and what he's doing to you know, make things work properly with them or like get things, um, the way he wants them and stuff like that. 
It's a very yep. love love driven book. If it's if, if even if it's a very misguided love, it's very love driven. Mm-hmm. And I think that Fred and I, I was going to save this more for the wrap up, but I think it's a good time to talk about. It. I think Fred tackles the relationship aspects um, in in very very realistic ways. So it, it's not very um, tropey, you know. Dale swoops in and saves the girl kind of thing. There are a lot more real situations that happen. Um, but, and I'll, I'll give an example. When he first finds out that, that this young lady is uh, and suspects that she's being kind of beaten by her boyfriend, you know, he, she doesn't immediately like take off with him or whatever. You know, there's this projection thing where she stays with her abuser, which is far more real life mm-hmm. than a fictional love story. And, and it, that theme kind of, I think, continues through, throughout the course of the book, even with his relationship with Mac, even though they're friends, there's, there's some fairly realistic, you know, kind of butting of heads and you know it's it's not just i'll do anything for my buddy you know that that you would expect to see when you know we're talking about two best friends trying to you know save one another or whatever it's comes up it comes across a lot more realistic than that even if the core of the story is this organ regeneration kind of you know fantastical situation yeah and let's be honest uh dale doesn't always make the best decisions like uh <laughs> he, he kind of I mean, he's—I don't want to call him a fuck up, but he does make some really poor or questionable choices that lead to having a really complicated life. So, I mean, even when things start going right for him, like he's not a likable dude for a lot of people, just because he's kind of awkward and quiet, and you know, he doesn't do things the way that you know society expects people to do things. So, um, throughout the book, I mean, it's there's a lot of struggle. I mean, there's just a lot of struggle for the protagonist. So. Um, yeah, it's very. It's not a very conventional. The protagonist is someone who, you know, it, it doesn't hit a formula. It's it's a different um, kind of take on a story like this. All right, um, what do you want to do? You want to move into quotes? Yeah, um, that's one of those stories that like we we kind of gave you the basis, but we don't want to spoil things. So, um, but mm-hmm. there is a lot of character that's going to come through at least in the quotes that I have. So, yeah, want to kick it off? Or would you like me to go? Trying to say my quotes are uncharacteristic. I'm not. I just don't want to speak for your quotes. I don't know what you have. I, I also. I also thought that was a good. But uncharacter. Character. Character. Forget it. Never mind. You. You go ahead. You start. <laughs> From the beginning of the book, she was beautiful in that perfect way. A girl is beautiful when you can't even imagine talking to her. And and that was uh, the the perspective of Dale, the protagonist. And here's a little bit of a contrast. This is his buddy Mac. Uh, this is a situation where they're they're trying out for the baseball team. Both of them are. The first pitch was a one-hop. Oh, and um, Clint, uh, uh, the person who, who ends up being kind of their nemesis, is the pitching, and Mac is, is at the ba- at the is at bat. The first pitch did you have, was... Did you have to look all that stuff up? Yeah, I didn't even know what I was talking about just now. <laughs> Fucking, I think um, that's the one where you... Uh, it's, they've got bases, right? Yeah, it's with the stick. All right. The first pitch was a one-hopper in the dirt. Mac pointed the bat at Clint. I'm not fucking walking, he bellowed. Throw a strike or I'll cri- climb that fence and banger myself. <laughs> that was uh, that was a very enjoyable, enjoyable line. Um, I'm also going to, uh, I'm going to go back to very early in the book, 2%. And, and quite honestly, this might be my favorite line in, in, the, in the whole book. There's... Um, 
Dale has been led into this kind of mean game by these three girls who, of course, are like the popular pretty girls in his class. And uh, basically he winds up, he, he falls down. He's blindfolded, so he can't see them. But he falls down, and, and this is the, the result. They bent over laughing, their hot breath on my face, smelling like cafeteria, sloppy joes, and potato chips in heaven. Aww. I love that. That's awesome. It's one of those things where you blame yourself no matter what anyone says, because to not blame yourself would just hurt worse. Here's a, here's a little bit of Dale fantasizing about a situation um, that he might get himself into. Maybe she'd pull away, give me a slap to the face, and then kiss me again, deeper this time, whatever that meant. <laughs> I actually just saw that in the episode of Sons of Anarchy tonight. It made me think of that line. Because I didn't understand what the hell it meant on Sons of Anarchy either. This is kind of a, an idea of how Dale thinks about him, his, his own life. My first live sexual moment was watching my arch nemesis fuck the girl I was in love with hours after my best friend had described her skills at sucking dick. So you just went for all the filth, right? All the just banging went. and all the dick sucking. That's, that's, <laughs> that's how you roll. Um, th- this time, I guess. That's what, that's, what the book, uh, that's what jumped out at me from the book. Um, we talked earlier about Dale contemplating suicide, and this is a, a quote from that area. When you fondle a gun, it starts out cool and warms up, getting friendly in your hands. Hold one long enough, and pretty soon the urge to shoot something takes on a life of its own. Uh, to compliment that, I have a suicide quote. Simply put, some deaths are acceptable because everyone loves salt, but most can't stand the taste of a barrel. There are a lot of good suicide yeah. quotes in this there, book. Yeah, there are. Call suicide what you want, but a cowardly act it is not. If you're not blowing your brains out, you're dying by neglect. That's good. Mm-hmm. And then moving along after the the the, the power to, to regenerate is revealed kind of to, to more people. Uh, but you're not invincible. My limp should tell you that. I'm just repeatedly vincible. That's good stuff. I was totally going to do that one next. Too See, bad. we have a we have a joint quote. <laughs> um, this is a little a little later in the in the book. Um, he took it as an insult. We both knew a reality show wannabe college dropout with no job was just as pathetic as a regenerating part selling food stamp recipient, only slightly less interesting. That's good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um. This is a sentiment that uh, I think uh, Mac gives to Dale at one point. You don't get it. It's all about the trying, about the ride. Sometimes almost getting there is just as good, you know? Mm-hmm. Good stuff. I could just keep going on and on. How many more you got? Um, I got like two or three. All right. We'll each do another one or two. Crackheads were mild by comparison. They would sell their mom's DVD player to get a fix, but a meth head would blow up a church with their mom in it just to pick the loose change from the collection tray out of the ashes. Also, a way we could raise funds for this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Anything to get money for the podcast. Uh, I got a couple somber ones, or at least more insightful ones, to uh, to round out uh, my quotes, and here's one of them. Um. We know what we feel, but never why. We get the raindrops, but never peek inside the clouds. This one is just pretty heartbreaking, uh, and it's kind of toward the end of the book. 
Here I was, the world's most inexplicable marvel, saving lives at every turn with impossible abilities, and I'm the one that made her stop believing in miracles. That is just uh, gutting. I also had that. Yes, it is. I also had the, the raindrops one, too. Just uh, taking all your good material. Apparently, well, we're taking all Fred's good material and using it to, <laughs> to have this podcast, apparently. All right, I'll stop off on a, on a, a funny slash cute one. Um, they're, da, 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 da. they're talking about a, an apartment, um, a, a house that, that Mac wants to get. And it just says, uh, uh, blah, blah, blah. I'm skipping over spoiler stuff, which would guarantee us houses. And then this is in quotes. So fucking hot. There's a basket near the door for chicks to leave their panties in. I think that's a good enough place to, to stop the quotes and go into some wrap ups. Um, you immediately went and bought a, a basket near your door, right? I didn't have to. <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't they have a basket already? <laughs> <laughs> I thought everybody, that was the first thing you get when you get to a new place is you get your panties basket. Oh my God. Yep. Uh, <laughs> all right. I'm going to wrap it up. Um, had not read the original Samaritan, so I don't have a, a contrast for, um, the heart does not grow back, which I think is probably, um, a nice thing from what, uh, we heard from Fred. If I remember correctly, this is a significantly different book than the original. So, um, I think it probably would be an entirely different experience anyway, but, uh, before this, really, I had just read some short stories here and there. So this is my first full novel experience with um, Venturini. And damn, is it a good book. It's a, it's a quick read. It's well-paced and it keeps you interested. And um, it's got uh, really good comic moments that are lighthearted and funny. It's got some really, really sad and, and heart-wrenching moments. And um, it's just it's a, it's a very unique story. The the protagonist doesn't do predictable things. Really, none of the characters do things that you would expect them to, or that you think that they will. So, um, it keeps you guessing, but it keeps you interested. Uh, Venturini, I'm I, I'm really glad that we got a chance to read this book, and um, yeah, I think it's great. I'm going to go four and a half stars. I wasn't going to bring it up because I wasn't able to do it, but. Um tried to read the Samaritan after reading this and it's uh, a 35% and by no fault of the Samaritan or this book or Fred or anybody other than my um, employer and my situation currently at work, I was unable to finish it. Um, But uh, very similar. Some parts are are, are clearly just taken directly from that book, but um, in talking to Fred a little bit online and I didn't get to to see that much of this, but it was uh, front loaded a little more, a little more meat in the front. And then I think the towards the the latter half of the book was a was a little thinner. Um, yeah, crazy little story about a guy who regenerates limbs, and you know, you talk about a different kind of superhero story. I think the word superhero always conjures up you know someone really gallant, and you know, I, I don't know somebody somebody um, you know, when you think of superheroes, they're they're dashing or they're they're really heroic or whatever. And Dale really isn't either dale has a one-track mind of of saving um this this girl and and he's gonna do whatever he thinks it takes as odd as it may come across at some points um to to do it i think that at heart it's really a book about relationships not uh, robert said love and yes love for for a woman but relationship between friends and even early on a relationship between him and his mother and i think that all those things are done extremely extremely well um i read this book in 
24 hours. I read the first half basically in one sitting one morning before I went to work. And if I didn't have to go to a pesky day job, I probably just would have sat and read through the whole thing. I enjoyed it um, quite a bit. So I, I'm going to go, and I think this is what two in a row now, five stars. Ooh. I love this book, dude. Um, all I want to say is that we're being so efficient with time, not because we don't have a lot to say about this book. <laughs> But it's a combination of the fact that we had given you two back-to-back, like, two-hour-long episodes. And that at any second now, we're going to bring Fred on to the episode. So don't mistake our brevity for for indifference. We really, really enjoyed this book. All right. Hey, Fred, thanks a lot for taking some time to come back on to Booked and talk to us about your your new book and everything. My pleasure. Always a thrill. All right. So um, before we get to talking about your book, we're going to be a little self-serving. Uh, so Pound of Flesh appeared in the book anthology and, uh, it was, a it, it was, a it's the story that's probably gotten most reaction, at least from people who have given us feedback. Have you received any reaction and what kind have you received a Pound of Flesh? <laughs> well, I remember the very first reaction I got was when I wrote it and it was a, uh, a love story that my wife had told me to write. She goes, why don't you write a love story? So I wrote that and it's one of the few stories, you know, I gave it to her to read. Actually, I think I might have read it to her. And the original reaction, the first reaction that that story ever got was, yeah, I'm never reading any of your stuff again. <laughs> that was like, <laughs> because my wife is not my target audience. She scares easily. Like she watches Dateline and it's like, I have to be careful. If I startle her, I might get stabbed in self-defense, you know? So, uh, so that was the first reaction. Then I knew I was like, hmm, maybe I'm onto something here. So, I've always had a soft spot for that story and always kind of wanted to see it in print, but I always thought it was too long and never formally shopped it around. But uh, as the gods would have it, you guys put it in print, and it was everything I hoped it would be. I, I don't remember all of the specific ones, but geez, just the Facebook comments that you get tagged in. I think the one that I remember most specifically is somebody said, I don't know if they tagged me in this one or not, fuck you, Fred Venturini, for that first story. Fuck you. <laughs> and that's a good fuck you, right? You're like, yes, fuck me. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, there was several reactions to it. And most of it, I think, was the good kind. I think when people have a visceral reaction to a story like that, even if it's like, oh, I can barely finish this thing, well, that's a good reaction to me. Uh, it's not the bad can't finish it. That's In that story, I think it's the good can't finish it. <laughs> So, lovely. I, I owe you guys for all eternity for putting that out there because uh, I always wanted to see it out there, and the people did not disappoint who read the story. So, uh, we kind of actually attended the This Is Horror podcast for their review of the book anthology, and um, your story was one of the most highly praised. And um, um, overall, like the 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 impression of the story is just like how like it's like a gut punch and it's funny when people talk about that story and and it's obvious that i obsess about it because like i thought it was such a great story um that line about um (laughs) like love being the choice between you know that thing with the the knocking the teeth out that whole quote yeah like uh taking her teeth out with a pipe wrench or branding her with it yeah yeah (laughs) that is universally the line that like when people read it and they really think about it and talk about it, everybody pulls that line. It was such a good line that, like, if anybody really read it and really thought about it, that's the line that they go to. I think it's great. 
I, I think that's the one hint in that first half of the story that really lets you know this is going to go into a, 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 a place that you're not expecting, right? Because yeah. it's pretty much just a standard, oh, it's kind of an old loving couple and you know he can't figure out his social media and all this is going on and they have this grand love story in their past. And then that one line in there kind of says, hang with this if you're a horror fan because the shit is going to hit the fan. So... <laughs> Yep, absolutely. Depending on who I was talking to about the book anthology, the type of reader, I'm like, listen, yeah, it's ideally like, you're going to love this first story, right? So that's for one type of reader. The other type of reader, I was like, the first story is really brutal, and it's not really indicative of the rest of the stuff in the book. <laughs> like, I felt like I was against the people. Like, if my mother were to ever read the book the anthology, I would probably tell there's probably like three or four stories I'd tell her just not to read, and I would definitely be just start with the second story is, is where I would go with that. So, um, yeah, but great job. And thank you so much for letting us have that as part of our anthology. No, and the other thing that's great is I think I just picked up a couple copies, extra copies the other day is, uh, like when I was doing an event, I just tried to take questions. If it's a good question, I just give them a book with one of my short stories in it. And I kind of size up who it is and what they might enjoy. <laughs> so that's when I'm like, Hmm, I want you to have nightmares. I really kind of mismatch it with that one. So, awesome. uh, it, it, that that's a nice thing to have to deploy and now more people are interested in some of my stuff and they're like what else do you have and i always point them to that one first you know like people who've read gasoline mm-hmm. uh and the burnt tongues anthology like, oh man this was great what else do you got i was like you know what pick this up uh, i think you'll like it so it's wonderful having it out there yeah, it was a great story, and it was like a it was a wonderful origin. It was just such luck that that it wasn't going to be the one that was in War at the Bar too. So, yeah, and you know what? I almost just completely bottom drawered it because I actually when I wrote it, I was in my MFA classes, and I workshopped it. And if I recall, the the reaction in the workshop was kind of underwhelming. I and I thought it was a little too like derivative of maybe a Straw Dogs or something like that. Uh, but like I remember my instructor saying, I've never seen so much uh, torture and violence, and I'm thinking it needs more torture and violence. I remember him specifically <laughs> saying that, but I didn't add much in when I was you know rewriting it. Uh, so yeah, I, I, that's one of the situations where I'm glad that my instincts kind of kicked in and said, I think this is better than it went over. You know what I mean? So nice. Very good. I agree. I fully agree with you. All right, so changing directions a little bit. The first uh, half of this episode was our review of The Heart Does Not Grow Back. Typically, when we have authors on, we give them the opportunity to kind of talk about it in their own words. So if you were summing that up to somebody, how would you describe it to them? Well, the way that I kind of discuss a little bit is I noticed a trend of fast healing in like movies and stuff and just media in general. And it was always used as a device to make people more durable for fight scenes and CGI and stuff. And, you know, and of course Wolverine heals from things, but it's instantly, he never really experiences what healing really is. And having been uh, a teenager who went through quite a few ravaging incidents that created a lot of healing, uh, I really wanted to do a fuller exploration of what it's like to heal from heinous injuries over and over again. So, you know, healing is that superpower that we all have. It's just that Dale in the book can really take it to that next level. Uh, He can regenerate those organs and those limbs and stuff. And the other thing I noticed is whenever you ask somebody, what would you do if you had X superpower? 
it, they always give you something that is either kind of dark or would make money. So where Wolverine is just a hero, Dale is trying to monetize his power through the black market or the reality show. Uh, so I just tried to take some superhero tropes and do something kind of different and more realistic with them. You know, I'm not trying to sit here like, oh, I'm not this gritty, realistic reboot guy, but I just thought that a fuller exploration of the healing process through the superhero narrative would be something interesting to do. And so that's how I kind of discuss the story with people, because every time I say the guy regenerates, like, oh, he's Wolverine or something like that. (laughs) No, no, not really. Not even close. So one of the things that that we both kind of liked about it was when you're talking about realism, too, is that Dale's kind of an awkward character. So you could have gone, you know, obviously multiple directions, but he's kind of a little bit of a social misfit. What was the the reasoning behind that? Or was there any reasoning? Was that just always the way it was in your head? Well, I think it's hard to create awkwardness, actually. I think it's kind of, you know, it's obviously a little more simple to say, here's my hero, here's my villain. Uh, To make something, to make someone awkward is a tougher trick to pull off. And the thing is, he kind of made himself awkward, you know? And another discussion I have about superhero stuff is, boy, we're awfully lucky the right people get these powers, right? Mm-hmm. It's like they're always, uh, they're always like rich people or just good people. It's like uh, Peter Parker got the super, got the Spider-Man powers. It's a good thing he got them and some other dick didn't because we'd all be in trouble. <laughs> well, Dale to me is one of the wrong people. He's to get the powers. He is not the guy who should really get them because he doesn't know what to do with them. He has no desire to do with them. Uh, he has this really tragic life that breaks him in so many ways. And it's kind of weird that, you know, he can do all this healing, but he can't really do the healing that he needs to do, you know, up top. So it's kind of like I wanted the wrong guy to get the superpowers. And then you always have the sidekick who's the voice of reason and is really important to the hero's arc. And this, you know, Mac Tucker's obviously not that guy either. He's <laughs> usually a horrible influence. And all the good advice he tried to give him, especially early in his life, always backfires. So, yeah, it, the, the awkwardness comes from the fact that the wrong guy got the powers. You know, uh, Peter Parker is in that high school somewhere and could have gotten him, but he didn't. The wrong guy got him, which is what I think made it a more interesting story to explore. It's really great when we just finish up a, a review and then like after we talk, you know, after we're talking to the author and it turns out a lot of the things that we were saying end up being the things that you're saying. So <laughs> well, that's, yeah, that's great. I love that. Uh, so yeah, I think we're on the side. At least we understood what you were going for, which is a very good thing. Um, another question about the book. So this is a, uh, uh, the original um, manuscript was, was put out as the Samaritan. Um, back in like 2010 and (laughs) I have been talking and I've been praying that I've been right about this, but in the rewrite, uh, I understand, uh, at least I thought that, um, you said something about it being a pretty significant rewrite. There's a lot of changes, right? Yeah. You know, the, the, what I've done is I've described to people like the, the words that I chopped out, the verbatim words that have survived. And it actually sounds like a bigger overwrite than it really is for the simple fact everybody's favorite stuff from the first one has made it through. You know, I got asked a lot, like, oh, you kept this scene, you kept this scene. And the answer has always been yes. So it's significant in, in, that, in, the, in the way that uh, 
only 35,000 words almost verbatim survived from the original 75,000 word manuscript. And now this one's over 85. And uh, so that's a lot of new stuff. And so, yeah, significant rewrite. Uh, did you, you guys didn't read the original one, right? This is your first experience with it. Right. I think almost at your uh, recommendation. Um, uh, yeah, but, once you yeah. once you do this, you're like, this is the story and the way that it exists now. This is the way that I want it to exist. But I don't. You know, I don't think that people who read the first one won't enjoy this one. They'll be they're perfectly set up for what this one does. There's a certain twist in the middle of this one that didn't exist before. There's a whole new ending, which is the primary reason I wanted to redo it. There's a new character. There are expanded roles for some characters like Holly in this particular book. Uh, Mac is actually toned down. He has a lesser role in the rewrite, and he's toned down a little bit because of that. In, in this one, so I think what you'll see is the the, the way that they work in companionship is the Samaritan. A lot more of it takes place before Hollywood, in the, in the high school. It takes much longer for him to get his, you know, I'm going to Hollywood to be the Samaritan type thing. Uh, this one, there's a lot more in the second half. There's a lot more, you know, Holly. There's a lot more Samaritan episodes. Hmm. Interesting. And I, and actually, one of the things about this, and I'm not saying that I wouldn't necessarily like the original, is that I thought it was well paced, getting him to uh, through his his youth and up to the point where he's kind of confronted with the the abilities in general. So that's interesting that it that it's it's more second part of his life, kind of. That's cool. Yeah, and in the old one, there's like a the, the middle part where he's kind of just hermiting out in that town with all the Walmart stuff. There's like a longer caper type story with uh, Harold and his henchmen, and that's almost just completely dropped out of the middle. So it, it kind of connects the two parts more cleanly in this one, which is something that uh, I liked about it. So, yeah, pretty extensive, but what I like is I think that I've kept the soul intact. I don't think anybody who's read The Samaritan is going to read this one and say, oh, I hate this. He's a sellout. It's completely different. I can't stand it. Um, one of the things that I thought about, and I don't think we got to mention the interview during pacing, because I like the pacing, too, because it, it skips around, not around, but it skips forward a little bit in time throughout the, the first half, which really has that kind of superhero origin story to it. I, it so to, to put it another way, if I was picking up a book um, about somebody who could regenerate something, you know what I mean, uh, written by someone else, I would expect it all takes place over the course of six months solid. You know, so yeah, did yeah. you kind of pace this as like a superhero novel, like we would see just snippets of the origin happening? Well, I, the, w the way that I'll phrase this is uh, I had the log line in my notebook for quite a while. I knew it was like a nice, juicy hook. And the log line was, guy can regenerate organs and limbs, gives them away on a reality show. Separately from that, I was writing a story, kind of a Mac and Dale story. And I had no idea where it was going. It was a, it was a weird idea, and I couldn't pull it off. So I had a lot of their material and their relationship kind of worked out. And only when I got to the point where, let's go ahead and put these guys in with this hook and see what happens. That's when I started to really kind of develop the concept that you're seeing with this novel. So I never really sat there and considered what's the pacing going to be? What's the time frame going to be? It just seemed like if you're going to have the events in the second half of the book, I wanted to make sure that the first half of the book 
stopped at the right places to give that the most context and impact and stuff. And part of the reason I was able to do that is because I had those relationships worked out. So there was never a point where I'm like, let's make this happen in six months. Let's make it happen in a tighter time frame. And that's actually one of those uh, feedback things that you hear a lot in workshops or from editors, right? You know, make it happen all in one thing, especially uh, like my TV writer friend is obviously everything needs to happen in a very tight time frame. Mm -hmm. But I never really had through editorial or any of that process. No one really seemed to have any problems with the way that the timeline worked, you know, or the fact that it kind of skips around or stops in during certain flag posts. Uh, so that makes me think now that I'm answering the question that it worked out pretty well. And it might've been by accident. I was just stopping in the most interesting places in his childhood. And I thought that the tragedy that occurs is obviously more interesting as a scene than a flashback. So, Hmm, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. I agree. Here's a thought that I had. Uh, just because of the basic, um, because you basically created such a unique uh, premise with the the ability to regenerate. Uh, do you consider this to be a completed story, or would you spin off with like short stories or any kind of follow up books or anything like that, or is this pretty much a done deal? Well, I'll I'll answer this two ways. The first way is, and I like to kind of throw this in there, uh, the original concept I explored is a short story, and that short story was actually a Burnt Tongues finalist. It got to Chuck. And I workshopped it, and the the response was, this is six or eight or whatever pages it was. This is all summary. It's interesting. It's a good hook. It, there's a longer story here. Come back, you know, basically, come back when you finish this story. So I was like, you know what? Maybe this is a longer story. So that's when I started to write the manuscript and, and got it going. And I don't know if you're the type of guys that actually read through the acknowledgments, but Dan Laughlin's thanked in there. Just by a sheer twist of fate, I got to meet him and talk to him, and it was under the context of developing a television series. Uh, apparently, when this was an indie novel, a new production company was kind of just squatting on the book and wanting to get a TV series kind of off the ground, and Dan had worked on Supernatural, mm-hmm. and which I had never really watched until I kind of talked to him, but man... He and I hit it off, total same wavelength. We still have really long and fruitful conversations. But when we were talking about it, and he had all these good ideas, and I had some ideas that stretched the story out, we developed five seasons. And the first season <laughs> was this book. So there was like four seasons of just different stories and you know all this other stuff. And Dan is kind of the one that gave me the idea for a, a possible sequel. While I think that this stands alone, uh, I think that one day I'm going to continue it, so, you know, at some point, uh, just because I think it's an interesting concept to explore in the sequel. And the sequel kind of spawned from Dan telling me, because I, I didn't think there was a, a supervillain or anything like that, right? And that's one of the things I thought was a little refreshing about it was there's no, like, Joker, right? Mm-hmm. He's kind of his own worst enemy, and it's just life in general and all this other stuff. So Dan was basically like, you know, for season two of this TV show, we can you can do what you did with the superhero in season one. We can kind of deconstruct the supervillain. And I was like, I don't have a supervillain in this story. And he's <laughs> like, yes, you do, and you don't even know it. And then he kind of explained it, and I was like, oh, mind blown. I was like, that's a great idea. And I just kept thinking about it and thinking about it. And we had all this stuff written down, so I have tons of like – 
story threads and ideas, and some of it made it into this new version. Uh, I was just, I was armed for that editorial process when they were like, you need to expand this or maybe trim this down. Because I had gone through all these discussions with Dan, I was armed to the teeth. I had gone through this story forwards and backwards, every possibility. So I was ready to make quick decisions that were thought out because of that. So that is a long way of me saying, yes, there is more story. And I would love to get the opportunity to tell more of it. And I was actually asked that in a, in a reading I was doing. I would like to take questions. Someone said, I know you have a sequel idea because it was someone I kind of knew and I had kind of pitched him the idea. He goes, I want to read that. How soon can I read it? And I said, go to the cash register, buy 5,000 copies of the book. <laughs> and it, and I'll get to working on it, you know, because you just, you don't know. I need an audience before people are going to pay me to write more of this story. So, Excellent answer. Um, it's an encouraging answer. I like to hear stuff like that. Um, and it leads greatly into my next question, which is um, asking you in general what is on the horizon. And more specifically, uh, in our first interview with you, you mentioned something about like one of the most interesting story concepts I'd heard in a while, which was the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, which I have been, I, I know Livius and I have just been kind of, not obsessing about, but eager to hear more about since then. So um, what's up with that and what is coming up for you in general? So, you know, the nice thing about this, because of the hiatus, I write the Samaritan. Samaritan comes out, does pretty good for an indie, you know, at least to the point where I have agents calling. And then I have an agent negotiating for the right, you know, there's this big negotiation period and then you have to shop it and then you have the book deal. So anyway, between 2010 and now, everybody thinks that, wow, Fred's about this one story, but I've never stopped writing. And since I talked to you guys, I've written two other books on top of the Four Horsemen one. <laughs> so I've got, so I got three. Now, I don't see them as complete. I basically rotate them. I rewrite one, then the other, then the other. But what's marvelous about it is, and one of the reasons, uh, I love my agent because I trust his feedback so much. And I gave him a draft of that Four Horsemen book, which is, and I think I'm starting to think that I'm, I might be better at log lines than writing because sometimes <laughs> they're hard to really match the excitement of the premise. And the other thing that I seem to have a problem with, and this was his feedback with the Four Horsemen one, was, uh, you know, you had it the entire way up until about like the third act, that last 50 pages, and then too much CGI, too much over-the-top stuff. You know, you kept it grounded and all this other stuff. So, and I seem to tend to do that in the other two books that I've done. So, usually what happens is I throw everything at the wall, it, you know, budget be damned, I guess. Uh, and then I kind of go through and I think of maybe better ways to ground it more in reality, I guess. I think that's kind of my thing now because The Heart Does Not Grow Back is kind of a grounded superhero story, you know, in some sense. So, but yeah, I. I seem to write a lot. I'm starting to get the picture that some people think that I'm a prolific writer because I pump out all these words. I had no idea. I just write the way I normally do. And if the story's interesting, you obviously write it a lot quicker than if you hate it, which is something that helps. As long as I'm having fun, the word count rises. That's encouraging. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm still <laughs> waiting on this one, but he's like, I got two others so, that I've worked on. So. I guess the, to... to... The follow-up question is, what do we get to read next, or is that not completely clear right now? <laughs> well, you know, uh, so it, it's a good – I don't know if you have many people on your show like talk a little bit of business, but I think it's useful. It makes sense because I'm like, hey, agent, I've got this book done. What do you think? And he's like, you know what? 
don't worry about it. If we go out right now, you're going to get the same deal that you got with this one. You know, just wait till this comes out. And when people ask, what else does he have? Mm. I'll be able to say, I'm glad you asked. So it's basically been me just getting bullets in the chamber. And I think it'll get to the point where we just kind of rank them up a little bit. You know, where uh, I'll get on the phone with him and we'll talk about what is the most marketable idea, the thing that kind of fits what we're what, what I'm doing with my career, I guess. Uh, all three stories that I'm doing, I love quite a bit. One of them I kind of owe to him saying, you know, you write all these words. Do you have any like YA series concepts? And I said, well, yeah, I do. So I gave him one of my log lines and he's like, well, yeah, write that. And the way that I like to kind of pitch that one is uh, the fault in our stars meets flatliners. Uh, and that I'll go ahead and give you a little because I just finished this one up and sent it to him. Once again, the third act is off the rails, so we'll probably be rewriting that one a little bit. But I love I like the concept because I was into religion and mythology when I was a kid. I took religion and philosophy electives in college just to kind of get in the mix with it. So the afterlife and religion has always fascinated me. So I just basically put a young girl in a world where travel to the afterlife is possible, just like you get on the subway. But it's been illegal for 20 years. So she lives in a world where she's never been to the afterlife, is not allowed to travel there. Her entire generation isn't allowed. But their parents have been there, and the entire world knows that we all go to the same place. And it kind of is a big buzzkill. And then she kind of falls for a boy, and a few twisty-turny things happen to where she's got to go kind of Orpheus and kind of hijack her way into the afterlife to kind of straighten things out because uh and of course strange things are afoot at the circle k once she gets there so that's my young adult series concept uh because i got a bunch of stories like that because in my afterlife it's kind of a hub where there's a door that goes into each individual one and if you believe in uh christianity you go to this place and you seek out the the pearly gates right the pearl gate uh Whereas if you were an ancient Greek, you would seek out the mountain, right? So it's kind of all these different gates, all the religions are all real, and they're all in this one central hub. And this central hub is under fire from bad, bad people, bad forces. And she's got to get it all cleaned up. So when you can kind of have a different afterlife behind every single door, you can do stories as long as you want to do stories. So we'll see how this first one goes. I actually love the first half of the story before she goes to the afterlife quite a bit. I liked that world. Uh, it was a fun world to kind of visit where everybody knew where we were going. It was this, you know, Christmas wasn't even celebrated the way that it's celebrated anymore because it's now this one collective holiday of gratitude and all this other stuff. So, uh, it was fun to do that and I kept the pace up pretty good, but man, once you get in the afterlife, that's what the expectation is. That's where you really got to pull out a few unique things. Mm, yeah. You know, you don't want to do what dreams may come again. So, <laughs> um, Livius, did you ever see Bill and Ted's excellent adventure? Negative. All right. So you didn't get the strange things that are afoot at the circle. K. No, 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 no. no. Right. But I, I did was... see, hold on a second. I did see flatliners <laughs> and I saw half of the fault in our stars and I have seen what dreams may come. So that puts me at almost three out of four movie references that I <laughs> no, did. Yeah. That those are all the important ones. You know, the strange foot things are foot at the circle. Okay, I say that like quite a bit. I I wonder how many people actually get it now at this point. Uh, now that I'm 
34 and I work in a building that has a lot of 20-somethings, I really have to double-check. Like when I was talking about seeing Dumb and Dumber 2 this weekend, they were like, there's a first one? What are you talking about? Like they had no idea. I was like, they were like three years old when it came out. I was like, come on. <laughs> I, I, I have um, quite a few teenagers that work for me, and I was talking to a woman about something, and the, the You Big Dummy came up, Sanford and Son. So, so I say to her, I go, watch this. And I turn to two of them. They're there. I go, either one of you know who Fred Sanford is? And they both look at me and they're like, no, just nothing. <laughs> like, no, like maybe he's someone that works with like just nothing. And I go, see, this is what I have to deal with all day. So I, I yeah, I get you. Yeah. yeah. I'm the same way. I'm, I'm 36 and the average age of my coworkers is, you know, early to mid twenties. So there's so many references that I make that. Actually, being and it's even worse because like being a a big reader of books and stuff, you're kind of in your own world anyway. So like I can't make a book reference expecting anybody to understand it. Then on top of it, now I've got these dated references to pop culture that just don't hit anymore. So it's almost like why even bother making references sometimes? Yeah, but you got to do it just to make let them know how cultured you are. Yeah, I just lorded uh, you know, over them like you should know this, and because you don't, you're a terrible person. And just like a marginal sports story from a couple months ago, Adrian Peterson beat his kid with a switch. You would be shocked how many people I knew did not know what a switch was. <laughs> like, what, what did he be? They were thinking like it was a light switch. They're like, what, did he have a cord and he was hitting with a light switch? I was like, no. You know, this oh, is that. Awful. That's the generation that's never been really hit with anything. Oh. I'm from a generation. I was just threatened with stuff, but I was, I guess, a smart kid because I never got hit. I was like, you know what? I believe you, and I know that looks like it's going to hurt. I'll just do what you say. I was not that smart <laughs> of a kid. Apparently, <laughs> I was. I was threatened with the switch. I was, and and the insult to injury is like if you're threatened of getting hit with a switch, they always say they're going to make you cut the switch. Like you yeah, have to really get yeah. it. Yeah, like that was. I, yeah, you had to like be the the you had to create your own tool of of punishment. Now I always my grandfather used to say that we're gonna go out back and you're gonna cut your own switch, and I was like, <laughs> good, I will choose one that will not hurt. The shittiest I was thinking, switch. I was, yeah, I was like, I'm gonna get one that'll. And I was thinking, I'll just cut a two inch thing. He'll just <laughs> with that. I thought it was a great idea. If he was like, well, if he ever does that, I'll I have a plan. So I know this has gone in a completely weird direction, but my mother tells me the same thing. So this goes back many years and across continents too. So she thought she'd be smart and cut the skinniest switch, which apparently is not the way to go. So if you're ever given that opportunity, apparently you <laughs> want to go for what looks like would be the tougher cell, the, the thicker switch will hurt less. Cause it's not as like cutting or exactly. Or, yeah. And it doesn't pick up as much uh, a momentum or something or I, I guess, right. but kids, if you're listening, <laughs> valuable life lessons here on book. Yeah, yeah. Comes jump, fat switch. Jumping in the uh, the the time machine for uh, corporal punishment, I guess. <laughs> well, I guess rule number one is don't be one of Adrian Peterson's fifty-seven children. <laughs> yeah. That's rule number one. Avoid at all costs. There's probably a lot of rules that involve Adrian Peterson. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> Fred, is there anything you wanna you wanna pimp before we let you go? Well, you know what? Last time I think we did something. I had nothing to promote and this time i actually i have a book out it's the one we've just talked about it's the one you just reviewed it's the heart does not grow back also burnt tongue uh, i just have one story in there and there's a lot of really good stories in there and uh geez there's even two introductions that's how good the anthology is there's two introductions one from chuck one from the editors that's when you know it's extra special so pick that up too and that story is gasoline i've actually been on fire 
make make of that what you will. Think about uh, it. Go out and check that out. So I don't know. You if know, you, we we I don't know if you know. But we did a, a review of Burnt Tongues, and having talked to you before, knowing uh, you had the experience of being on fire, um, I had guessed that that your story, gasoline, was drawing on personal experience for that. You know, and I got to say something about that because I did hear your review of it and everything. Now that you mention it, but when people <laughs> I know are going to read this. Uh, I don't want them to think it's a memoir. Uh, you know, I thought for a long time, people always say, why don't you write about the time you're on fire? Okay, so you had this 10-year-old kid, and I was a pretty decent 10-year-old kid. And the 13-year-old that burned me is legitimately was, you could just tell at 13, he's going to grow up and he's either going to kill somebody or be in jail or just be a drug addict his entire life. Uh, he actually passed away of an alleged drug overdose several years ago. Uh so I'm glad I won't have to actually run the risk of running into him somewhere. That's old, people always ask me, what would you do if you saw the guy again? I was like, I really don't know. I if I set me on say, fire, I'm going to run the other way. <laughs> yeah, well, that you know that you really don't know. You're like, I'm not going to be scared. I was always thinking about, like, hey, look at you, man. I won that one because you're probably in this – because I've always heard that he was in this really bad place ever since those events. But, man, he ran the gamut. It was animal torture. It was pyromania. I mean – it was bad stuff, but it was a, it wasn't an interesting story. You know, bad kid burns the good kid. That's not a very interesting story to me. It was only after I saw, I think it was Atonement, where it was like that, you know, living with the lie kind of story. I decided to make the kid who got lit on fire just as much of a villain as the other guy. Like my entire goal was, can I make people maybe dislike him as much as like the future serial killer? So that's why the story, I think, the universal reaction I get to it is like it's super dark. Like Chuck's notes, I remember, he said, gee, nothing really happy happens at all. And maybe you just want one little happy thing in there because of all this uh, dreariness and darkness in this story. It'll just kind of set things up a little better. And I can't remember what I thought was a happy moment that I put in. But the disclaimer <laughs> is, the disclaimer is, it's not a memoir. I just use my experience of being on fire as to what it's like as the launching pad for a story so that's my <laughs> that's, that's my burnt tongues disclaimer it's uh, the thing that we learned from burnt tongues is um exactly what it takes to make grown men appear in public in their pajamas <laughs> yeah yeah like that's uh, the answer if you're in a book with chuck polinick you are then willing to go out into public in your pajamas and read in front of hordes of people well Everybody at that event was either in pajamas or it's Halloween. They're in a costume. So I was really super comfortable in the pajamas. And it's like, oh, that's uh, right. Yours was right on. Yeah. And uh, let me see. I had like the uh, like a Henley style pajama where I'm from. That's almost going out clothes. You can go to Walmart and see people wearing <laughs> that exact same stuff. So it wasn't a big departure being in the pajamas. But obviously the pajamas weren't nearly as nervous as having his crowd at my disposal and no one knowing who I was and who the fuck is this guy get off the stage where's Chuck but it all went great that was fantastic I don't know judging from your Barnes and Noble event that you had recently I just guess that those are the type of crowds you draw anyway oh no I geez you know I I did my old college the other night and I was talking to a professor because he was like oh I don't know how many people will be there I'm trying to give out extra credit to get people there and stuff I was like I've done I've done crowds, you know, now I can say I've done crowds from like six to probably 600 at that, uh, at the powerhouse in Brooklyn, maybe more than that. I tried to get a count myself. You just count the row and then you count all the way back and kind of do a little multiplication. Mm. So I'm always, yeah, I'm always ready for anything when it comes to that. And 
I don't think I'm going to draw a crowd yet. You know, the whole thing with that Chuck event was, all right, this was great. I got on the stage with him. I got to share his crowd, but now I want to earn my own crowd. And I think part of that is he makes readings a lot of fun. It's very rock starish. And the first question that he asks is, who's never been to a reading before? And it's usually a lot of people haven't. So I'm kind of glad that those people are getting his reading as the first experience, because usually when you hear, oh, I'm going to a reading, you don't get excited. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's like, oh, I'm going to a recital. You know, that's why I like the noir at the bar branding, because that sounds right in the title, mm-hmm. darkness and beer, right? It's an easy sell. I can get casual friends over to that all the time, you know? And they're like, what are you reading? I was like, I always get told to read the most offensive thing possible. Like, oh shit, that sounds great. Let's go. So it, I'm glad that Chuck's out there creating these really, uh, interesting and fun reading events. And he's, Obviously, if you do it with them, you start to get your own ideas, like uh, taking questions and giving away stuff. People like free shit, you know, so mm-hmm. I try to bring a little free shit to the table now. Uh, so maybe one of these days I can draw a crowd that big, but we're definitely not there yet. But you just got to keep writing the next page. It's always what it's all about. And no matter how well my current book does, I'm always going to be writing the next page. I've written my entire life. I'm not going to stop. You know what I mean? Because people are always asking what's next or they, they act like writing's a job now, you know, like one of the local <laughs> lady at the paper said, how do you find the time to write? I was like, do you ask uh, the guys around here? How do you find the time to hunt or play video games or watch movies? <laughs> it's a, it's a hobby that I have and I do it cause it's fun. And as long as I'm having fun, it seems like a lot of other people have fun. Hence, you know, the book deal and the book is out and stuff. So We'll see. When people stop having the same fun experience that I have with my stuff, that's when I'll probably go away. But until then, I'm I'm out there doing my thing. So, you know, now that you mention it, no one's ever asked me how I find the time to podcast. Um, I will say, I'm really, I was really happy for you to see that you hit the uh, um, iBooks uh, November the twenty of November, top twenty of November, or something like that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, there was so much like uh, shocking good news during like one week. It's like, <laughs> hey, here's your New York Times review, and then like here you're on the iBooks list, and uh, oh, you're going to be reading with Chuck on Halloween. I'm like, what is going on here? Uh, it was just, it was amazing. So, yeah, you just basically the advice is you work hard, you hope you get lucky, and maybe you'll have a week like that because that was a whole lot of fun. And uh, you know, it, I got to tell this story real quick just to tell you guys if anything else, because it's so full circle, so kind of funny, you know, so I'm in burnt tongues because of a story called gasoline. I read gasoline because I kind of been on fire and I actually wrote that story. The night I first met Chuck in St. Louis I had a really bad fever. I went to his signing for snuff, which was Oh nine. I think great guy. I mean, that was when he signed the books individually. So a huge line and I wait and I got this fever and he signs the book and he's so nice. He talks he, encouraging about my MFA write something about uh, good luck with your writing in the book and stuff like that. And I go home that night, and that's when I wanted to finally tackle my darkest story, my gasoline story. So you get in burnt tongues, and then years later, you're at the event with uh, Chuck, and there's so many people there, and there's one little seat next to the stage where he can bring me up. It's reserved, right? So I hang out. I go to the seat that's reserved. I sit in the reserved seat. And I kind of try to settle in and calm down a little bit. And there's this uh, girl sitting next to me in her pajamas. And she's like, you know, I drove hours 
to get here. I was here like two hours early to sit in the front. How did you get a reserved seat? I was like, man, this is the moment I've been waiting for. I'm a writer and I'm with Chuck tonight, you know? So that was a nice conversation. But where it gets weird is she said, are you a burn victim? I said, yeah. How did you know these were burns? Because the way I've had them fixed up, it's really hard to tell. She's like, well, I can tell you've had tissue expansion done. I'm a burn victim too. So she kind of pulls down the front of her shirt a little bit tastefully to show (laughs) me the skin grafts uh, on the upper part of her chest there. And I was, it floored me because I had never met really another burn victim. So she was kind of pitched, oh, you should get involved with the Phoenix Foundation. You'd probably be a good role model for that kind of stuff. And it was just so strange to me to have that burn connection just randomly there at that particular event. It was like everything just kind of connected all at once. So that's one of the stories I'll remember from that night, maybe more than anything else. That's really awesome. That's pretty amazing, yeah. What are the chances of all that happening, all coming together like that? No, no, and uh, I guess... One more quick thing to mention about Chuck, since he's such a God, he's a generous guy. So you ever have somebody ask you or tell you, hey, if there's anything I can do, let me know. And you're like, you know, you're being nice to ask. So I'll be nice and not ask you of anything. Right. Yeah. So after it's that's over, that's how I always mean it when I say it. <laughs> well, that's, that's how I always hear it. When someone's like, man, if there's anything I can do, just let me know. I'm like, oh, that's polite of you, but I'm probably not going to bother you. And uh, so the reading's over and. I rehearsed the reading really hard, and I did a really mean, crazy, nutty, Chuckish short story that went over phenomenally well. I wasn't worried about the reading because I rehearsed that. I was worried about like the jokes and the buffers and trying to actually connect with the crowd a little bit, and that went over great too. All the ad libs, everything just went A plus. I was really pleased with it. So when it's over, I go up and Chuck has his he has like an entourage, he has his agent and his tour manager, and uh, Dennis is there uh, who edited burnt tongues and does his social media and stuff mm-hmm. and uh of course they're all like oh you did great blah 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 but it really felt genuine right it really felt like uh boy i don't think they're shitting me i think they really saw some unexpected goodness out there so you know i'll take that i'm happy and as luck would have it me and chuck are kind of talking one-on-one and he says you know when's your book out for like real i was like you know next week if there's anything i can do you know you let me know and i'm like okay He's, he's offering, and I'm going to be nice enough to not bother the guy. He's done enough. Uh, he's rubbed me off his crowd and everything else. But then he starts suggesting shit, right? And the first thing he suggests is, you know, I don't think publishers really get behind the debut authors the way that they should. I think you came to New York on your own, right? And I was like, yep, you, you know, that was a whole burnt tongues thing. That's where that invitation came from. It didn't come from Picador, so I came on my own, kind of rallied my troops together. He's like, that's great, that's great. If they send you to the Pacific Northwest... If they send you to Portland to like Powell's, any events you do up there, I'll do the introduction. I was like, whew, that's pretty generous. <laughs> so my marketing person from my Picador overheard this, and they were like all excited. So right now, it's looking like January 14th, get this title, Fred Venturini featuring special guest Chuck Polnick at the, at the Powell's uh, January 14th. So that's going to be my next big event is to be introduced by Chuck to people who are just there to see him introduce some no-namer. So that is pretty be next... awesome. <laughs> so uh, that's kind of in the works now. So, you know, you, you think you have this once-in-a-lifetime night, this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Well, it's going to be at least twice in a lifetime because uh, obviously I've been a fan of Chuck. And one reason is not just enjoying his work, but how he kind of taught me 
that writing is something you can practice and improve at, you know, through his website and stuff. So just a huge influence and now all this. So I just hope that I can get enough momentum going that January uh, can be really productive up there. So that's kind of like the, the big event that I've got coming up. Uh, yeah. So if anybody's in Portland, January 14th, come check it out. I hope I didn't get the date wrong because <laughs> I don't have my calendar. I well, think it's the there's, there's got to be somewhere people can keep up with um, the three pending novels and appearances and stuff. Where can people keep up with you at, Fred? Well, I've got a website, fredventurini.com, but unfortunately, I'm in charge of updating my own website, and it doesn't happen as often as it should. <laughs> like one of my friends even said, I was looking for like an events page. You don't even have one. Uh, I said, well, I just feel weird making my own events page. I just kind of like Facebook to me is a good you can write a little clever thing it kind of stands as a blog and stuff and it gets more exposure I'm just not I feel like it's a duplicate effort to get on the website I need to get successful enough to have a social media manager right I mean that's like the next step you got to get somebody to kind of handle your stuff because like Chuck's got a guy that runs his Twitter it's like and I'm thinking who's going to handle my 200 followers I was about to tell you, see if you'll get Chuck to put up some stuff on your website. Seems like he's really uh, generous with his time. Well, uh, yeah, he's a <laughs> of a guy. So, uh, but yeah, fredventurini.com. But if you want more frequent updates, you can try to find me on Facebook. And I do this thing on Facebook where you have to friend me. You can't just like me, I guess. There's a difference. And people are like, oh, you got to do the like thing because there's no limit as to how many people can like you. And I was like, if I get to 2,000, then I'll <laughs> worry about it. Right now, it's like 300 people. So I'm <laughs> just right, not going to make a whole other thing. And I have people, you know, you have people in social media that have to double post. Like, mm-hmm. I have to do this on my author site, and I have to do it on my personal. Yep, so I know who you're talking about. And there's, well, there, I, there's, there's that other one. awkward part. When someone asks you to like their page, and you go, I know this person, I like their page. And then they have another page because it's specifically for their novel. And you like, And what you get is when they post something, it's like four scrolls just to get out of that post because it's posted in, you know what I mean? Yeah, but I don't, I don't, I don't reject any friend request on Facebook. I basically just accept everybody. And what you're going to see is it's going to alternate cute, clever picture of like my kid and then like something writing related that hopefully is worth your time. I, the, the guy who needs to give out the social media training lesson. The most entertaining guy on my Facebook is David James Keaton. He has Facebook posts that I read to my <laughs> wife and try to explain how entertaining they are because sometimes she doesn't get the references or something, but some of them are great. Like the one that I remember more than anything because it's just so true is uh, when he was talking about how a lot of ex, not his ex-girlfriends, but like friends of his have a girlfriend and then friend him and then they break up. <laughs> And they block each other on Facebook, but he stays friends with them, right? Yep. And I have, I have that too with people where I go through. I was like, oh, this chick is like married now. I remember having dinner with her with my friend or my brother-in-law or something. So that just made me crack up. I thought it was so good. And, uh, yeah, he should – man, that's a guy that can make a living just writing funny Facebook posts because they're just amazing. So That dude is just universally entertaining. There's nothing he doesn't do – or there's nothing he does that's not entertaining. Like, Yeah. Yeah, we could all stand to learn to be a little more entertaining off of him. I agree. Well, Fred, thanks um, for coming on and giving us, again, what happens on this show sometimes. We come on and talk about one thing and we get into a bunch of interesting stuff. So you've been a great interview once again. Thanks for your time. Well, thanks for having me. I mean, the tangents make it worth it, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yep. What an excellent guest um, Fred is. And part of that, 
I'm, I'm going to assume that he was a great guest because we had, uh, oh, I don't know, about an hour that we were talking after the official interview was over. So I know I've got a lot of the awesome from afterwards mixed with the awesome from during. Um, sadly, you'll never get to hear any of that. You want to hear that kind of stuff? Get your own damn podcast. That's right. You've become a great interviewer and have excellent guests like we do, and then you can get the the scoop on, on what's going on in people's lives that they can't tell to the world. Right. Uh, but if you are looking for some more Venturini in your life and you are in the area of Maplewood, Missouri, um, this coming Thursday, November 20th, uh, he will be appearing at the Maplewood Public Library 6 p.m. with uh, Matthew McBride and I believe Jedediah Ayers, correct? Yep. Dude, how did we not get invited to that? It's like all booked alum there. I thought you were banned from all libraries. Like the American Library Association has like a has like a poster with your face on it. It's all because when I was in fourth grade, I took out a choose your own adventure book. And being a little kid, I didn't return it. Like, no, listen. Dude, I'm still paranoia like through high school. That like someday like the police would show up and arrest me because I had this book and I was like, I can't afford to take it back because by now I owe like eighteen thousand dollars in late fees. <laughs> I and and I, never, that, I never take it back. I thought you just meant you're so indecisive that you couldn't choose the event. So you're still working on the book. <laughs> I I, what I couldn't choose was to take it back to the library, apparently. <laughs> you know uh, the guy who, who created those died this past week. I heard something about that. Yeah. yeah. I wonder yeah. if he chose that adventure. Oh, that was terrible. <sighs> um, another thing that came up during our conversation was the noir at the bar events. And uh, we may have mentioned in a previous episode... Coming up December 9th in Chicago, uh, Jake Hinkson pulled this together as a Noir at the Bar event uh, featuring Ken Gowron, Kevin Lynn Helmick, Jake Hinkson, Sam Reeves, and Frank Wheeler Jr. Uh, at Quencher's Saloon starting at 6 p.m. and that is a Tuesday. Dude, that's a great name for a bar. Yeah, especially if you're thirsty. Well, because there's, okay, so I'm going to name just off the top of my head some bars that I know in Chicago. Shooters. Doesn't make any sense. Teasers doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Quenchers. Oh, look at that. That may solve my dilemma of being thirsty. There you go. Absolutely. Yeah, so come and join us. We will be there. We will be emceeing the event. So we will be your hosts for the evening, and we will be um, probably podcasting it as well. Yeah. It's so awkward doing those because we can't live edit ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, here we screw up. We just take it over again. Yeah, but if we keep doing them, we're just going to get better at that, too, and then we'll just take over the world. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of taking over the world, you know, Rob, it's not cheap to take over the world. It, yeah, there is some ongoing costs. There are some ongoing costs. And we at this podcast have incurred some ongoing costs. Some of you may already know, as we have already um, put together about 10 Patreons. Patreons, am I saying it right? I hate saying this. Patreon? Patreon. Patreon. So for um, the first three and a half years of this podcast, it was all free. We didn't have to pay anything. No hosting, no whatever. Uh, special thanks to our friend Mac who helped us out with that for the first three and a half years. Mac, you're now dead to us because we have to pay for our own hosting. <laughs> um, that wasn't the approach I was going to take. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Mac will be forever not dead to us because of yes, the generousness that, is- that he showed us for the first three and a half years of this podcast. Um, but now, now uh, he's uh, moving along and um, his, uh, his, his energies are focused elsewhere. So we are um, move, migrating to a different setup, which means that we have monthly costs now, and we have set up a way that you guys can help us um, uh, take care of some of those costs and um, branch out and do new things as well. 
So, yeah, to be fair, within our first six hours, um, some of our dedicated friends and listeners already took care of our monthly costs for us. But um, that did. So we were shocked. We were shocked. This is this is the conversation. We had. Man, it's going to cost like 30 bucks a month. Maybe we can set something up to where listeners can help us out with that. Great. Maybe we can cover half of that $30 a month with listener donations. Well, we were shocked to find out that this podcast has some monetary value to people. That's right. Um, so Rob and I um, are, are going to, to continue to accept donations. And I say that like we're gracious enough to do it. We're doing it. All the money will go back into the podcast in one form or another. So we're already coming up with milestone goals and rewards for listeners who contribute. Now, what's the minimum they contribute? Like 15 or 20 bucks a month, right? Um, here's the thing. You can go as low as a dollar a month, but if you Holy do the shit. math, mm-hmm. um, uh, the average monthly uh uh, contribution that we have set uh, right now is about eight bucks. So between five and ten bucks a month is what um, the average patron is is giving right now. Yeah. Um, but to say it, I was actually just hoping that all our listeners would give one dollar, and that would make me happy. And remember, I'm the greedy one. So um, if you've got an extra buck laying around and you want to throw it towards a worthy cause, Patreon p a t r e o n dot com slash booked is uh, where you can make that donation. We do promise that for certain levels, there will be exclusive content in the form of podcasts, maybe live video hangouts. Every patron will receive some type of bonus benefit that non-patrons won't. That's right. So hit us up over there. You're just going to, it's really easy to set up a monthly payment, like a recurring payment with us. Um, And all it comes down to is that basic NPR bullshit of like, it's, you know, we have operating costs and we don't want that to get in the way of us creating, um, you know, free content for everybody. So anybody who contributes is going to get something extra from us, something special, a little token of our appreciation. Um, And we will continue to make this podcast, whether you contribute or not. But everything does go to make us um, uh, uh, do the podcast and do things that we wouldn't have uh, been able to do otherwise. If you're unable to contribute, we understand. Find someone else that will contribute in your stead. That's right. So, What else we got going on with the podcast, Olivius? That's it. Here is teasers for the next three episodes. Um, Dodgeball High by Bradley Sands will be our next episode. Um, We believe if scheduling works out, Bradley will be joining us after that review to talk about Dodgeball High and some other things. Dude, we're going to totally have to talk to him about that Emma Emma Steele shit. That's right. Oh, damn. Maybe I should read that ahead of time. (laughs) You should. They're quick. Literally, a lunchtime, you'll read them. We'll see if we can get him to fess up to to that being him. Um, After that, uh, the book Bird Box will be reviewed, and we're also trying to set up an interview I don't know if you noticed. We're going to have to let up off of this because poor Rob is way overworked and we still don't have enough in Patreon um, funding to hire an intern. Because <laughs> we're trying to do an interview with that too, which will be four reviews with interviews, a total of five, six episodes with guests, which always means it runs much longer than when it's just me and Rob. Because yeah. after that, we're going to have a holiday. A hol- well, maybe not directly after that, but there's a holiday spectacular coming up, which will include a review of the human centipede that's right and our halloween extravaganza spectacular co-hosts will be rejoining us jesse lawrence and amanda gowan we will not make amanda do any palm readings but we're probably going to get something festive going on yep we're going to to try to recreate the magic that was the spooked tacular that's right the lightning in a bottle yep we're gonna have to come up with a clever name for this for this episode that's right hey speaking of clever it's always good to see a booked alumnus 
even if it's just someone where you're viewed um, win something. And uh, basically uh, what it boils down to is we're always right. That's right. The Bizarro Con just recently happened in Portland um, or is currently still going on or just wrapping up anyway. By the time you listen to this, it will be done. Um, and every year at Bizarro Con, they do the Wonderland Book Awards. Uh, we are three for three with our uh, uh, the last three Wonderland Book Award winners. Um, and there's two categories. One's novel, one's collection. But um, each year we've had um, a book that we've we've been into uh, has won one of those two awards. And this year it's Time Pimp by Garrett Cook, which we both gave really good reviews for when we uh, when we talked about it a little while back. Indeed. Next year, my idea for a novel that I shared with Rob. <laughs> <laughs> I just want Rob to laugh about that. I'm not giving out any more information because you guys aren't stealing my idea for a Bizarro novel. Uh, it's too much power for one man to have. Mm-hmm. That's all I'm going to say. All right. I know we ran a little bit long. Thank you for listening, as always. And uh, we'll be back next week with some Bradley Sands. Until then, I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading. <laughs>